What's the new plan to reduce medium and heavy duty truck emissions in North America? And which celebrities gain the most heat for warming up the planet? Welcome to the Climate Recap from the Becky Spear Climate Corner, your go-to place for international and U.S.-based climate news. I'm Becky Hogue, a science writer. Today is Thursday, August 4th. Let's jump right into the news you need to start your day. Let's start with some extreme weather events. The heat wave is still going on in most of the U.S., specifically the Pacific Northwest, the Mississippi Valley, and the Northeast. Some notable high-temperature mentions from yesterday include Oklahoma City's 103 degrees Fahrenheit, or 39.4 degrees Celsius, and Austin, Texas's 104 degrees Fahrenheit, or 40 degrees Celsius. Temperatures could get as high as 110 degrees Fahrenheit in the coming days. At least 14 people might have died from the heat wave in Oregon alone. High tide flooding has broken records in multiple coastal towns along the East Coast and the Gulf of Mexico so far this year, according to data released by the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, on Tuesday. NOAA predicts that high tide flooding has increased in those areas by 150% since the year 2000. It expects there to be about 45 to 70 days of flooding in the U.S. and its island holdings each year by 2050. Since May, three NOAA-monitored areas have either tied or broken their records for this form of flooding. There hasn't been much flooding along the West Coast and the U.S.'s island holdings because of the La Nina. I also think the coastlines are steeper on a lot of the West Coast compared with the East Coast. One East Coast state, Illinois, experienced over 8 to 12 inches of rain in a 12-hour period in a 1 in 1,000 year extreme weather event. It's the third one-in-a-thousand-year event to hit the continental U.S. this week, already killing 38 people in Missouri and Kentucky. There's about 20 flood alerts in Illinois so far, and flash flooding is expected. We have a few climate studies. Lyme disease is on the rise due to climate change expanding the range of ticks. We're talking an increase of up to 6% in rural areas and 19% in cities from 2016 to 2021, according to a study by the U.S. Global Climate Change Research Program. This is an impressive jump, as less than 1% of ticks carry the disease. Summer months are the worst for the cases. Ticks can also carry a variety of other illnesses, so ticks spreading more is bad for many reasons. 11 scientists presented a tour of plausible ways climate catastrophe could lead to civilization collapse and mass human morbidity. This is a topic not many scientists have touched yet because, frankly, it's something we don't really want to think about. But it's important, and as the scientists pointed out, understanding the exact threats could lead to further alarm and action. It could also help us keep an eye on stressors we might have missed. These scientists looked 3 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels right in the eye. Published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, the scientists strive to answer these four questions. 1. What is the potential for climate change to drive mass extinction events? 2. What are the mechanisms that could result in human mass mortality and morbidity? 3. What are human society's vulnerabilities to climate-triggered risk cascades, such as from conflict, political instability, and systemic financial risk? And four, how can these multiple strands of evidence, together with other global dangers, be usefully synthesized into an integrated catastrophe assessment? It's a really long paper, so that's all I'm going to say about it, but if you want to look into it, there will be a link in the source list below. Let's check out some climate victories. 
New Zealand released its first climate adaptation plan, which will take measures over the next six years to move 70,000 homes to higher ground. It also includes provisions to better tackle flooding, wildfires, and other extreme weather events. However, the bill falls short of who's paying for it and how much it will cost. In Europe, the European Commission approved a 3 billion euro plan to invest in new and existing district heating networks. These networks will be run on 75% renewable energy and waste heat. The money will be provided through government grants until 2028. This effort will reduce countries' dependencies on fossil fuels. The scheme is expected to support the installation of 681 megawatts of renewable heat generation capacity per year and will cover up to 40% of the eligible investment costs of projects. Over in North America, 17 states, Washington, D.C., and Quebec, Canada, signed on to an action plan to get 30% of the mid- and heavy-duty truck sales to be electric by 2030 to reach 100% new electric vehicles by 2050. The agreement was facilitated by the Northeast States for Coordinated Air Use Management, which is a mouthful. The heavier trucks are harder to decarbonize because they require a lot of energy, but the technology is getting better and cheaper. The plan includes policy recommendations for crafting legislation, including adding charging infrastructure, subsidizing EVs, and requiring electric fleets to submit data laying out their EV adoption rate. This will impact 36% of the U.S.'s medium and heavy-duty vehicle fleet. We need to give a round of applause to the state of Maine because it has successfully cut its greenhouse gas emissions by 25% since the year 1990, according to its environmental department. The goal was just to cut 10% by this time. More than 90% of this reduction came from its energy sector through reducing fossil fuel use, increasing clean energy development, and increasing energy efficiency. This is actually a 38% emissions reduction since the state's emissions peak in 2002. Every other state seems to be struggling decarbonizing efficiently, so well done, Downeasters. Time for some climate fails. Germany struck a new deal with Sengol to develop its gas production in the greater Tortu Ahman field. The Sanganese government expects to extract 2.5 million tons of gas from the first year of production in 2024 to reach up to 10 million tons a year by 2030. Of course, Germany is just trying to get off of Russian gas, but it goes against the country's previous promise to stop funding offshore fossil fuel projects. Waters off the coast of the gas fields are part of the UNESCO-recognized marine mammal sanctuary and the world's largest cold water coral reef. The development could harm these fragile ecosystems. In North America, Ontario, Canada is considering making a remote place called the Ring of Fire a critical mineral mining hub, which would likely destroy some of the second largest complex of wetlands in the world. Wetlands and peatlands are important carbon sources and biodiversity hubs. These particular wetlands store about 35 billion tons of carbon, equal to the annual emissions of 7 billion cars. There are doubts about how much the mining operation would even add to the critical mineral supply because the mineral values provided are outdated and some call them off the mark. One study published last year found that if this project was given the go-ahead, the environmental disturbance it would cause would result in the wetlands releasing between 130 to 250,000 tons of carbon. So yeah, this project is not worth the amount of critical minerals it might supply. So I have some caveats for the Inflation Reduction Act. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I just did a video on it, so you can check it out in the description below. The first caveat is about the EV section of the act. The $7,500 electric vehicle tax credit extension comes with a lot of limits from how much the EVs can cost, how much income the buyers can earn, and where the batteries and vehicles are made. 
This is because West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin thinks an EV tax credit is ludicrous and funds China-made batteries, so he put a ton of limits on it. But this could heavily hinder Biden's goal of having 50% of cars sold in the U.S. electric or hybrid vehicles by 2030. Companies like Ford, General Motors, Toyota, and Stellantis are pushing hard for these credit limits to be loosened. One of the most concerning sets of limits are requirements that would render EVs made with any battery component manufactured by China or other foreign entities of concern ineligible to receive the credit after 2023. And beginning in 2025, that prohibition extends to the use of any critical mineral in a battery that is extracted or processed by these countries. China makes a ton of components, and it takes time to build up the domestic supply chain, so the majority of EVs could be rendered not creditworthy. The car companies just want the time frame of these credits to be pushed off by like 12 months to 18 months. There might also be an issue with the $20 billion in agriculture funds. While some investments are good, others could actually increase emissions through encouraging more land clearing, fertilizer use, and intense animal breeding. But it mostly leaves it to the agriculture department to decide what to do with the money, so it's not set in stone. The act also gives biofuel tax credits, which could add more strain on the domestic food system as most biofuel is currently made from corn and soy. The House and Senate need to vote on this act today to get it through before Congress goes on a summer recess. Okay, now we have to talk about the celebrity flight emissions media flurry right now. This will actually be the next video I'm going to work on because I want to do something different before I dive back into the topic of inflation. But for a short description of it, Kylie Jenner got into hot water for taking a 17-minute flight on her private jet somewhere, and people quickly accused her of being an enemy of the climate. This sparked a marketing agency, The Yard, to report which celebrities accrued the most emissions flying on their private jets this year based on data from the Celebrity Jets Twitter page. Turns out Kylie isn't even on the top 10, but in 19th place. Though her boyfriend Travis Scott is in number 10 and her sister Kim Kardashian is number 7. The top 5 from least bad to bad are Blake Sheldon, A-Rod, Jay-Z, Floyd Mayweather, and Taylor Swift. Oof. That hurts because I'm a massive T-Swift fan. Since the list came out, several celebrities have made statements saying that the jet wasn't theirs or they weren't always on the plane, but sometimes they let friends and family take a spin. But there's a larger message to this. Swift's jet emitted 8,293.54 tons this year so far, or 1,184.8 times more than the average person's total annual emissions. Put another way, a single private jet can emit two metric tons of CO2 in just an hour. The average person in the EU produces about 8.2 tons of emissions over the course of an entire year. That's insane. A private jet is literally the least sustainable way to get around. This highlights, again, the vast disparity between the wealthiest individual's emissions and the rest of us. The top 1%, which is those who make over $109,000 a year, make 70 times the emissions as the bottom 50%. So yes, I usually say individual impact shouldn't be focused on, but for these people, it really should. Additionally, celebrities are examples for others, whether they like it or not. Lastly, I just want to remind everyone, as many parts of the world are in or heading into a drought, to use your dishwasher if you have one. I've met several people who use their dishwashers as drying racks, which is not great because dishwashers only use about 10% of the water you'd be using by hand washing everything. So you're saving a lot of money off of the water bill by just running a load. Just thought I would share. 
And that was your climate recap for Thursday, August 4th. If you like the work I do, please follow this podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a review, and consider checking out the Becksphere Climate Corner YouTube channel. Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Bye for now.